0: Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now we're living in very strange times. Uh, if you're at home, which I'm sure you are watching this, and I hope you are bearing up under what are extraordinary circumstances. Over the coming weeks, we at uh, the New Culture Forum will continue doing our broadcast. We're going to continue doing our interviews with So What You're Saying Is, and indeed our discussions with counterculture, only with slightly... Uh, Uh, technical tweaks, as you will see. Um, I'm delighted that my guest this week is the eminent and award-winning historian Tom Holland. Tom is the author of numerous books. He's also the translator of classical texts. He has presented documentaries on television. He's a presenter of Radio 4's Making History. His most recent book came out last year. It's called *Dominion: The Making of the Western Mind*, and it's about how Christianity has informed our value system and our structures of our society right up to the present time. Thank you very, very much for coming on, Tom. Thank you. Uh, beautiful display of books, there. Um, how are you? Joining the trend. How are you bearing up?
1: Right. Um, I I, I meant to be finishing a translation of Suetonius for uh, Penguin Classics, which I was meant to have handed in for Christmas. Um, And for various reasons, uh, my life's been very busy. Um, So in a way, I'm quite grateful for the opportunity that it's giving me to just sit down and absolutely nail it. Okay. Having
0: said that, obviously I, I, I'm starting to really want to get out that. Yes, you. yes, exactly. Um, I, I want to start actually, Tom, because you you wrote a, a a fascinating piece, I thought, in the Sunday Times quite recently, when you were looking at the various plagues that had uh, come in the ancient world, particularly in in Athens and and Rome. And uh, you were talking. I think the the title of the piece was that you know you think it's bad now. You know. What it was like then. I mean, I wonder whether, in fact, there are any parallels with what happened, for example, under Pericles in ancient Rome and uh, in in Athens rather, and then also in in Rome. Are there any parallels with what we're going through today?
1: Well, the the, the great thing about um, Thucydides' account of the plague of Athens, which is the kind of primal account of the impact of an epidemic, is that he, he analyses what the, what, what the plague, whatever it was, probably ty- ty- a probably form of typhus, typhoid fever, yeah. um, on the individual. And he, that he knew all about this
0: because he himself had recovered from it. But what he also does
1: is to recognize that there is a, a kind of political pathology that the impact of the disease has a terrifying impact on the democracy and on the social structures of agents. Yeah. And so that also is, is, is widely included in his history of the Peloponnesian War, because he sees in the long run that the impact of the plague is measurable in the effect that it has ultimately on the way that Athenian society functions, the strategy that it pursues in the war, and ultimately all this is unspoken. I, I, I think to that degree, the way in which the impact of this disease is... Not just on individuals, but on the whole of society. That is something that was absolutely understood by the classical authors as well. well what I said that. I mm. said that. The point of the article was hopefully a, a, a mildly encouraging one, mm. which is the terrible though the impact of of um, COVID nineteen is on 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 individuals and on us.
0: Just explain a little bit, because a lot of people watching will not know uh, necessarily very much about that plague, the Athens plague. I mean, how did it come about and, and what was the result of it? Can you, can you just tell us a bit about it?
1: Well, the, 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 the context for it is uh, the Peloponnesian War, which is um, the, the, the great war between Athens, the, the maritime democracy, and Sparta, the insular it's still a crowd, xenophobic, military power. So kind of the classic war between an elephant and a whale. Yeah. And the Athenian strategy, based on the fact that it's a great naval power and a great um, uh, trading power, is that uh, the Athenian people will hide behind their walls and let the Spartans move into Africa, burn the crops, and then kind of like a, a wave and then there's a links with Egypt. all kinds of, of, of terrifying um germs and diseases hit the Roman Empire in ways that that, that, that have incalculable
0: effects. What what was the nature of these places I mean what, what, you know in compared to what we're talking about now I mean were they you know were they sort of like Ebola for example or or what 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 was the nature of them?
1: There's there's, um, a plague in the mid third century, which um, uh, is known as Cyprian's Plague, after the church father, St. Cyprian, who um, became Bishop of Carthage and who wrote um, about its impact and about its effect. Uh, And to the degree that it's possible to uh, work out what a disease was from very ancient accounts. People have seriously suggested that this, perhaps, was, was a form of Ebola. The, the, the descriptions sound familiar, um, blood kind of coming out of the eyes, um, limbs falling off at the end, I mean, horrible, horrible way to die. And there seems to have been a recognition um, that corpses themselves were, were highly infectious, which, of course, is, is, is a part of Ebola, so that, that, that's, that's quite a, 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 a well-grounded theory
0: right do you i mean how did you you said that the most important thing is how it changed for example you were talking about athenian society and and now roman what were the changes was it collapse i mean did these societies collapse well he simply says of, of athens that
1: nothing had a greater impact on the course of the war than the plague and by that he meant that the survivors had a kind of um giddy Lack of patience. They felt that because they had survived, therefore, in a way, nothing could harm them. And so, this leads them to increasingly rash strategies, which the the culminating rash strategy is an invasion of of Sicily, which ends up wiping out large quantities of Athenian ships and and men, and basically dooms Athens to to, to defeat by by Sparta. And so, Thucydides absolutely traces this to the kind of long term impact. Of the plague, which had happened decades before, in Rome there are there, there are three great plagues. There's Cyprian's plague that I mentioned. There's a plague earlier, before that, at the end of the second century, called the Antonine plague because it hits in the reign of of, uh, uh, of the Antonines, Marcus Aurelius, um, and then uh, the, and then the plague of Justinian, which happens in the sixth century. Each of these have a kind of cumulative effect. The the um, the Antonine from the East, uh, seems to come from from, from Persia, uh, it sweeps the whole of the Roman Empire, and although it doesn't bring the Empire down, it it leaves it vulnerable to the further shock that is uh, the plague of Cyprian. And Cyprian's plague, in so far as we can tell, Kind of unleashes a meltdown of Roman society Mm -hmm. and the the reason we have to say so far as we can tell Is because we don't really have very good sources for that period and that may be again a reflection of the impact of the plague But to the extent that we do know what's going on we know that the Roman Empire essentially implodes Mm -hmm. This is a period of increasing anarchy Empire, emperor, butchers, emperor, butchers, emperor, Emperor, often within the space of a few months Um, The empire fragments into several portions and it's only with a huge effort of will that it's put together again and when it emerges at the end of the third century beginning of the fourth century the Roman empire is a very different beast it's a beast with that is much more muscle bound much more top heavy much there's a it's it's, you know again in the context of what we're talking about how to fight covid it, it it ends up as a kind of surveillance society yeah yeah Um, the great urban empires of of Constantinople and of Persia is absolutely devastating because the impact on urban centres is much greater than it is on those in the peripheries, particularly in the desert peripheries. And so I think it's entirely reasonable to see the uh, collapse of both the Persian and the Roman empires before what will become Islam as in part, at least, due to the impact of the plague in the 6th century. So these are you know,
0: world shaping events. Do you think that when we come right up to date, or should I say at least in historical terms up to date, uh, to, for example, the Spanish flu after the First World War, do you think that uh, there are any parallels between what's happening now and that, for example? I mean, we, we hear that journalists, journalists particularly at the moment, are talking about pandemics and plagues almost you know is it interchangeably but from what you're saying it seems to me that what we're having at the moment is not exactly a plague in that sense um but but the but the oh, spanish well, I, I, flu was I, I have to say which historians
1: always do that it's not my period right <laughs> i i have no great knowledge of the spanish flu or anything like that right but what i would say in, in in the context of um of, of the classical plagues is that Um, they are an index of globalization and in a sense what's happening goes back to the Bronze Age which is the first period where you start to get large settled communities in the forms of cities and trade routes linking them to other areas Mm -hmm. of the world, perhaps with animals where there are diseases capable of making crossover. And you you get trace elements of plagues. in, you know, it's there in the Iliad, um, it's there in the Old Testament. the reason why they're so devastating in the context of the Roman Empire is is that the empire exists on the kind of the, the crossroads of yes. these two great breeding grounds of, of plague Central Africa and Central Asia. Yes. And in a way, the, the, their impact is so devastating precisely because they there's nothing like them has ever been seen before, nothing on that scale. Yeah. And again, the, the Black Death is a kind of another reverberation of that. Since the, the, the era of, of authentic globalization, the knitting together of, of nations across the entire world, what's happening now is clearly something that's been waiting to happen for the same reasons that the that, that plague hit, hit hit the Roman Empire. Um, and I suppose that that in a way we can count our blessings that it hasn't been as bad as it might. Right. Um, and in a sense it's a kind of warning shock.
0: It's You're waiting for the big one. Yeah. You know it's going to come. Uh, I know that I've spoken to enough historians to know that you hate being uh, asked to give predictions or to look into the crystal ball. But but what do you what do you see as being broadly, as far as we can tell so far, the general changes that might happen to our society as a result of this? I mean, people are, a lot of people are speculating at the moment. I'm seeing more and more articles about the way in which this will fundamentally change us, but how do you see things going forward politically? Well, you're right, I, I, I'm not remotely qualified to, I'm no more qualified to, to offer prognostications than anyone else, but having said that, since you've asked me, um, I, I, there are there are kind of two uh,
1: alternatives, one and both of which are sanctioned by, the, by, by historical exemplars. The first is that it won't really change much. Right. Um, the impact of the Spanish flu is is, is the fact that basically everyone forgot about it. Uh, people are talking about it now because of, of, of what we're going through. Right. The impact of, of, of the current epidemic is so seismic precisely because we have no phone memory of yeah, the Spanish yeah, flu yeah. and it's perfectly possible, I thought, that this will come and go and then everything will kind of go back to normal um, against that. Um, I think we have to wait and see what the impact of this is going to be on countries that are, are much less fitted yeah. to cope with it than than than, than, than we are. Uh, it's, it's clear that the Asian countries like South Korea, uh, Singapore, precisely because they have already experienced, you know, they've got been through the mill of SARS, so they are ready for it. So they are best qualified. So they, I think, are going to be the kind of you know, they 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 the, they're soft power status, let alone their economic status. In the weight of this is going to be enormously enhanced. I think that that this is going to be very damaging to the prestige and and, and indeed the kind of self-confidence of of Western powers. It looks as if the United States might be in in considerable trouble. Uh, I would thought that Trump will lose the election now. Um, But what will the impact be on on countries that don't have that, that that are currently. Mm-hmm. I mean, our healthcare mm-hmm. systems—they may be in the process of being overwhelmed, but we have healthcare systems. What about countries in countries you know in uh, countries that don't have any like that? And thinking particularly of countries that are suffering massive stress, mm-hmm. so Venezuela, I mean, What's the impact they're going to be? Yes, what's yeah. the impact be on a, on Iran? That seems to have gone completely silent. Yes, yes. Uh, are we really meant to think that it's just stopped? I don't think so. Mm. Um, you know, can see. Uh, all kinds of tremors building up there, perhaps on Saudi Arabia. I mean, we don't know. So I would have thought that it will be an amplifier
0: on where there are stresses, it will amplify those stresses. Do you think, I mean, do you, uh, again, sort of looking at the situation at the moment, do, do you sort of tend to go with one view, which is that basically this is going to, Strengthen the reemergence of the nation state, for example, you know, or or do you think that that is uh, sort of uh, uh, an exaggeration? I mean, many people are looking and saying, well, look, you know, borders have arrived again, and the EU appears to be relatively irrelevant in this situation. I mean, these are quite big developments, are they not?
1: Seems to be so pure. Everyone, every every country has has essentially drawn back on its own yes. uh, resources. Borders have gone up, um, and it's clearly not uh, it, it it it's not working out well for the European Union. Um, it's coming under enormous stress, uh, and I think that kind of pan-national organisations like the World Health Organisation seem seem to have been behaving disgracefully. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Again, I'm not qualifying. I offer no specialist opinion on that, but purely from from reading about it it, 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 it really doesn't seem to have measured up at all. Mm. So, it may well be that in the short term uh, there will be a, a, a sense that every country is going to uh, want to make sure that it has access to the kind mm. of uh, resources that um, <laughs> you know, a country like Britain simply hasn't had. Yes. Um, I would have thought that in the wake of this uh, we're going to want to do that. Equally, however, I would have thought that the long-term effect will be to recognise that that we are now we we are a global society, mm. and what, for instance, putting up the drawbridge against say if Africa goes into meltdown with this, that's not going to help Europe. Um, mm. So there is going to have to be some... I, 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 again, I'm. I'm not I'm, I'm not giving you a straight answer, but I think that there are going to be contrary stresses here. You know, there will be the instinct to draw up the drawbridge. Equally, there's going to be a consciousness of the fact that we can't really afford to do that because um, the world's ability to cope with this pandemic is going to be as strong as its weakest
0: link. Yes.
1: Um,
0: You've just written a book or last year, a very well-received book Tom, you know, called Dominion, as I said in the introduction, which is about... The, the influence of Christianity, essentially, on our modern societies and how it's all-encompassing, um, and in a way that maybe we didn't fully appreciate before. Uh, I wonder whether you could explain to us, because I, you've written extensively about Islam too, and I wonder whether there is any difference, or what are the big differences in the big religions in the world in their response to, for example, what is happening now. Do would they look at these things in a different way? Well, um, the, the thesis of, of, of Dominion, it, as you say, is, is that people in the West are, are, are much more Christian perhaps than, than, than many of them would, would think. Um, and the analogy that I was thinking of when
1: I was um, writing the book was that we're, we're goldfish mm-hmm. and the waters that we swim in in our goldfish bowl are Christian ones. Um, then, then I watched the, um, the HBO series about uh, Chernobyl and, and, and had a, <laughs> was struck by a different metaphor, yeah. which is that I, in that film, in that many of your viewers will have seen it, there's, um, there's a scene where two of the characters are right up <laughs> close to the leaking reactor and you can see the, um, the radiation coming out because it's ionizing the air, but of course the impact of, of, of this leak in the long run is invisible. You can't see it if you're in Kiev or in Scandinavia or in a, a you know, sheep farm in Cumbria, but it's still affecting you. And that's really how I, I see that the, the impact of, of, of Christianity, is that, um, not to say that it kills you or makes your hair fall out or anything like that, but that if you're up close to it, of course you can see it. You know, if you're looking at the cathedral, if you're contemplating Bunyan, um, of, of course Christianity's impact is absolutely in your face, but its impact is also there even if you may not see it. And so, for instance, the question of the idea of world religions, the idea that there are things called religions. This may seem a given. You may just assume, oh, of course there are things called religions. There have always been things
2: called religion. But in fact, this is an example of the way in which, kind of like, you know, you don't have to see radioactivity to be affected by it. Yeah. You don't have to be aware of Christianity's impact for it to affect the way you think. Because in fact, the
1: idea of what world religions is a very, very Christian one because it's Christianity that provides the prototype for a religion. And the reason that it does that is that by the 18th century, for complicated theological and historical reasons, Christians in Europe have arrived at a very, very strange and culturally distinctive notion, which is that there is a space called the secular, which is assumed to be neutral, a kind of neutral space. And then there are things at tangents to the secular, called religions mm. and religions are what you believe in they what you you know your personal relationship with the deity and so this is a a, a, a a way of understanding society that christians export with them kind of like you know people carrying the virus if you like you know you 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 take it with you you don't even realize you take it with you yeah and so they for instance the british arrive in india and they call it Hindustan, they call the big inhabitants of, of, of Hindustan Hindus. And the British understandably say, well, what is the religion of the Hindus? But it's a bad question, because the Hindus don't have a religion. Because religion is an entirely weird, culturally distinctive 18th century way of seeing things back, you know, based in Europe. But because the British are governing India, and because Indians increasingly come to speak, or you know, at least you know, elite Indians come to speak English, Without even being aware of it, they come to absorb this idea that there is something called the secular and that there are things called religions. And the notion that the word that the British invent, Hinduism, is something that Indians themselves come to take on. They come to think of themselves as belonging to a religion called Hinduism. And by the time the British go, um, the leaders of the independence movement in India are perfectly happy. Uh, indeed indeed it's fundamental to their vision of India's future to think of it as being a secular republic and to this day India is a secular state and the fact that it's a secular state is a kind of witness to to, to Christianity's impact and in the book I cite an Indian scholar who brilliantly sums it up he says that Christianization proceeds in two ways it proceeds through conversion Mm -hmm. that's obvious but it also proceeds through secularization Mm -hmm. and so when you look at countries that in in, in no way would you think of as being uh, Christian, India, Japan, Turkey, all these countries define themselves as secular and so to that degree they've been Christianized. And I think that the degree to which Muslims think of themselves as belonging to a religion called called Islam is also reflective of the way in which Christianity has has impacted Islam. as in a way that's what i wanted to write about was was the way in which christianization has had this almost invisible impact in the world and it, it, it's had an impact on people who would absolutely not think of themselves as christians not just atheists but people who would see themselves as belonging to very different traditions
0: in 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 our sort of society People who are proudly secular uh, don't think that there's any religious context at all to to their secularism, don't do they? I mean, they, they they think it's something that almost arrived, sort of out, sort of a strange kind of humanism arrived almost out of nowhere.
1: Well, they, 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 because because secularism essentially is is what provides the the, the basis for yes. our multicultural societies in all their different books, be it the French, the British, even the American book, Pretty important
2: to the successful functioning of secularism that it is thought to be neutral, that it is thought to have just kind of magically materialized, like I don't know, a sunny day or something, it's yeah, just there. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you start asking yourself too closely where does this idea come from,
1: then you have no choice but to recognize that it's deeply, deeply rooted in profoundly Christian assumptions, mm-hmm. and that's why it's much, much easier for Christians and for people who come from a Christian cultural background to just accept that the idea of the secular is something that everyone should, you know, should take it for granted. But it is safe and acceptable for Jews. And in a way, um, you know, this has been evident from from, um, from the emergence of, of the, the kind of idea of the ACK in France, which is the first overtly militantly secular society under the revolution. Jews are allowed, their human given citizenship of the French Republic. But there is a kind of proviso, and that is that they are no longer allowed to think of themselves as belonging to a people, which is what they've always previously done, always thought of themselves as the people of Israel. those distresses. And so the lure of of the idea of a kind of global ummah, the idea of a caliphate, the idea of this kind of global polity where Islam is not a religion, that it is is something far profounder than that, it is part of the fabric of of, of, of people's lives, which is what Islam always was until until the the, the 19th, 20th centuries. The appeal of that is obvious, and I think explains why very
0: cool joining global love was, was so profound. Mm. Do you, do you believe yourself actually, uh, Tom? I mean, are you sort of, you know, you've written the, the book, the implication, I, I, perhaps I'm wrong. Tell me, but is that the influence of Christianity on the whole has been quite a positive thing? Um, but do you therefore, are you, do you believe in, in God yourself? Are, would you call yourself a Christian?
1: The that the influence of Christianity, I think, is liable to seem a positive one is because our standards of what are good and bad are basically Christian. Right. So, <laughs> when Christian is judged and found wanting, yeah. so the Crusades, violent, um, yeah. uh, the Inquisition, um, you know, brutal killing of, of innocent people, why do we think war is bad? Why do we think the, the killing of innocent people and the torture of them to death is bad? This, because Christ! Mm. <laughs> Know, told Peter to put up his sword uh, and said, "Turn the other cheek." That mm-hmm. is the idea, you know the ideal of Christian pacifism. And why 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 is the idea that inquisitors might torture to death innocent people so offensive to us? Because the central image of Christianity is a man tortured to death under the image of torture. Yeah. So even when people condemn Christianity, they do it for deeply deeply Christian reasons. Mm-hmm. And essentially, what, what I have come to realise, and the reason I wanted to write the book was that. Um, Pretty much everything I I think and believe, uh, by the standards of a kind of exacting rationalism, is is mythical. Mm -hmm. Uh, Human rights do not exist. Uh, There is no obligation to show uh, compassion or charity to those who are less fortunate than you. there is no reason why um, bloodthirsty conquest shouldn't be celebrated. Uh, there's no objective reason why uh, racism shouldn't be celebrated. Um, the reason that I, um, what holds to the values that I have, don't reflect human nature. They reflect kind of objective reality. They reflect the, Huge weathering effect of centuries and millennia of history upon me, mm. and upon the society in which I've been raised, and the family in which I've been raised, mm. and therefore I, uh, I essentially have the choice of um, jesting or completely, becoming, um, you know, embracing a kind of existentialism or whatever, or, or accepting that, that that myths can be true mm. and. In the uh, the end of the book, I I quote Tolkien, who 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 basically says this that myths can be true, and I suppose that that's where I am. I I, um, if if I'm asked, well, you know, where was where was God when uh, when the the asteroid um, hit hit the planet at the end of the Cretaceous? uh, Where is God in the vast inky depths of space? Mm. Uh, Then then you know I, I I can't really believe in God, but if I think what do I believe, what do I value, Um,
2: what do I find the most compelling uh, narrative that I know, it it, it, it is the kind of the the, the passion and resurrection. Mm. And the experience of of
1: reflecting and thinking about it over four years and, and, and more has been to open up to me The degree to which all that I believe as a kind of secularist, as a humanist, is simply a watery and anemic version of Christian myths. Mm -hmm. And that those Christian myths are so potent, um, so beautiful, often, um, so illumined by the thinking of minds immeasurably greater (laughs) than mine, certainly, that I feel almost a kind of arrogance not to accept Mm. that I exist by virtue of these Mm. myths, Mm. and that therefore my relationship towards them cannot simply be one of of, of, of doubt or repudiation. Mm. So to that extent, um, it, it's, it's obviously complicated, incredibly complicated. And you may feel that I'm, um, I'm not giving you a straight answer. No, no, no. no, no. That perhaps I'm not giving you a straight answer is because I think it, it's too complicated for a straight answer. And that, and, and that in that, I, I think that I'm not in any way unusual. I actually think that the relationship of people in the West to this Christian inheritance is more complicated mm. than, than most people think. And the moment you do stop to seriously consider it and contemplate it, you have no choice
0: but to accept that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, the reason I ask is that this is something that bothers me occasionally, and I've had conversations about it. Well, I tend not intellectually to believe in 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 God, um, but nevertheless, I, I, I've sort of, I've I've rather settled on this phrase, cultural Christian. Do you know? Um, I don't know whether yes. that means anything to you.
1: Accept it to be a culturally Christian. I think, by and large, the West is profoundly culturally Christian. Yeah. And I think, furthermore, that the kind of the, 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 the non-belief in a in a culturally Christian society is in itself a kind of belief, yes. because it's defined by what you don't believe yeah, in. So, in that sense, it's the kind of you know, it's 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 the negative of a photo, but you don't have the negative without yeah. the original photo. Right. So, in that sense, um, secularism, humanism, whatever we would call it remains a belief system there's nothing obvious about it it requires commitment it requires belief it, 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 it has priesthoods it has um, you know it, it has heretics it, it, it's very it, it's, it's it's it is in a way a kind of you know if you think of, of, of um, the medieval church which is born in a kind of great cultural revolution in the 11th century and then Protestantism which is born in very similar cultural process of Reformation, in the 16th century, um, what, what is now the kind of um, the, the, the dominant way of understanding the world is is the product of the 18th century and its kind of reverberation through the Enlightenment, French Revolution, the 60s, and so on. Um, but I I think that I'm more than cultural, more than culturally Christian. I I, I think that there is a kind of uh, nexus, a kind of intersection of the Venn diagram belief and disbelief right. where I find myself currently I I, I I do believe in the Christian myth that's pretty like that yeah, yeah. I, I do I think the Lord Jesus Christ rose on the third day or well, I'm not sure but I kind of believe that there is a power in that myth that goes beyond simply yes uh, Yeah. Simply, kind of the rationalist ability to explain it
0: do you think um, you know this is a very very big question but do you think that situations that we're going through at the moment, say, for example, with COVID-19, uh, do you think they tend to give a boost to religion or do they tend to diminish it in the long term? I think
1: that um, the, the, the Christianity's power is, is founded on its ability to provide comfort yeah. to those who are suffering, ultimately. Um I think that, that, was, that, that, that was evident right from the start, the, the idea that um, you know, it wasn't Caesar who was the son of God, it was someone who had suffered the most humiliating yes. death imaginable, had yes. suffered the death of a slave, and therefore there's a kind of um, death charge there which burns very slowly throughout history, but containing the idea that perhaps, that the slave is closer to God than than the king, yeah. um, and this manifests itself in times of extreme stress, of which plays are absolutely an example. In offering reassurance to people that there is love for those who are suffering terribly, and there is hope, and there is purpose. Now, whether theologically you can provide sanction for that is. Mm. It's a notorious problem, mm. but I think it's indisputable. Uh, looking, for instance, at the at the, um, uh, at, at the testimony of Cyprian, the, the, the bishop watching people die very, very horribly all around him, there seems to be no doubt that, that that Christianity is better able to provide people in suffering those terrors with a sense of. of of hope and of purpose, a sense that there is love for them from their fellow men yes. as well as from God, because one of the things that, that Christianity seems to inspire in a way that it doesn't among other people suffering from this plague is a readiness mm-hmm. to go and help those who yes, are suffering. Yes. So I think for all those reasons, you, you might think that that plagues or wars or earthquakes or whatever. Would, would would get people to question the idea of an all powerful good God. Mm. Uh, you know, famously it did for Voltaire and the impact mm. uh, the aftermath of the, the destruction mm. of Lisbon and the earthquake. But actually it, it perhaps country shift it seems to work in the other way. That, it, that that it's when you feel the profoundest grief, it's when you're in the uh, the valley of the shadow of death mm. that perhaps that you yeah. you most want what, what Christianity can offer. Yeah. Um and so it'll be I'd be interested to see what the you know, whether, whether it leads
0: people to lose faith or to gain faith or to, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see. Um, Tom, I, uh, it's great to talk to you about this. I, I, I have been uh, looking back at your output, which is prodigious, extraordinary, all the things that you've done from, from the very early novels you were writing uh, right through to, to now. Um, and, and I noticed that uh, you were writing an opera. You're, you're, you're writing an opera about <laughs> Cleopatra. Is, I was wondering that now that we have... I know you've told us that you've actually you've got your work cut out as it is, but are you sort of progressing with that at the moment, or?
1: Well, it's done. It's done. It's done. Um, it's, uh, yes, it's, it's a kind of operatic mumma mia. Um, <laughs> you, I, I've got two friends who are both very musical, uh, far more musical than I am. Um, w- w- they're married, one is a singer, one is, one is a director. And we've been kind of working on various ideas for musicals for years and years. And our most recent one was uh, we were getting to do a musical about Nero as a rock star. Right. And we thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just maybe just chuck in a bit of Monteverdi into it, or um, or, or handle Pina. And then we said, well actually, there's no reason why we couldn't, no. and to have the copyright. And from that, kind of the idea spiraled, that. that um, uh, let's do uh, um, a Tell the Story of Cleopatra, but using the, uh, the most famous arias imaginable from 19th uh, century high opera. Oh. And so that's what, that's what we're doing, oh, great. Um, and it's been show, showcased at the Albert Hall. Really? Uh, when, did, when would that be? And uh, so that was, that, was, uh, that was last spring, oh. um, and now we're, we're in the process of talking to all kinds of people, and it was, it's just kind of building up to a head, and then coronavirus hit, oh. so it's all gone back into
0: spaces again. But um, fingers crossed. Well, great. So we will actually, it will at some stage be performed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. God or um, ISIS or whoever willing.
0: Tom, thank you very, very much. Uh, It's great. Thank you for joining us and for giving us so much time. And uh, well, look, um, I hope, uh, you know, stay strong and stay well. Thanks very much for watching. uh, So what you're saying is uh, look forward to seeing you next time please do uh, keep subscribing won't you and uh, also do stay safe and stay well thank you.